Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This weekend, the nation marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Nearly 3,000 people died. 161 of them had connections to Connecticut. Today, where we live, we hear from New Canaan resident Mary Fetchett, co-founder of an advocacy group for families impacted by 9-11. She lost her son Brad on that day. Coming up, we'll also talk to a Middletown resident about a tribute concert happening this weekend. And we want to hear from you, too. What does the 20th anniversary of 9-11 mean to you? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is Connecticut Public's Diane Orson, who reported on that day. She recently worked on a documentary about the anniversary. Today, she's Connecticut Public Radio's Deputy News Director. Diane, so good to have you on the show today. Thanks, Lucy. Glad to be here. I think a lot of us who were alive on that day think back to what we were doing on 9-11. So what was it like for you working in a newsroom on that day? Well, I remember it quite clearly. I was uh, going into our New Haven studio of WNPR that morning when one of our producers said to me, you're not going to believe what just happened. A plane hit the World Trade Towers and we thought it was an accident. We quickly turned on the television to watch as things began to unfold and not long after the second plane hit. Um, And then it began to look as if this was a deliberate act. And so um, I got in touch with our then news director, John Dankosky, And we decided um, that I should go down to Union Station in New Haven because being here in Southern Connecticut, where I'm based, um, we're kind of on the outer edge of the New York City orbit. A lot of people commute from New Haven, at least before the pandemic, we're commuting uh, down to New York. And certainly in 2001, there was a lot of travel back and forth. So I went down to Union Station to talk with people uh, returning from New York City and also people um, who were on Amtrak trains. And and actually what had happened was that uh, Metro North initially was evacuating people from New York City to Connecticut, but then literally stopped all commuter trains in and out of the city. And anyone who was on an Amtrak train between Boston and Washington was told to get off in New Haven. So there were a lot of people. Um, And actually, I brought a clip this morning of some audio that I collected that day. I created a montage of voices, but here's one voice uh, to share with you. I work in New York a couple days a week, and when I got into uh, Penn Station, I realized that the E-Train probably wasn't going to be running, so I started walking, and as I was walking, kind of making my way across town, um, there was a bunch of people on every avenue kind of looking down the street at the World Trade Center, which got to be, you know, two, three miles from there. Uh, And so we stopped, and we were just, everyone was just in awe, kind of watching the smoke, and then all of a sudden, it just fell and it just you could just see it start to shimmer and ripple and it just collapsed in a heap of smoke 
and then everyone just kind of looked at each other and people started I don't want to call it panicking but definitely getting scared um, and not a stampede but kind of running to wherever they were going and um, just a real eerie place down there. Wow, that must have been something uh, to witness that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Diane, no one really knew what was going on in those first uh, couple of hours. Uh, I was in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, in Pittsburgh, and just uh, 80 miles from there, uh, a hijacked uh, plane uh, crashed in Shanksville. And and even in Pennsylvania, there was so much fear. And I think a lot of people were feeling that that day, whether they were in New York or just watching the events unfold. For sure. Um, Actually... After uh, going to Union Station, what I did that afternoon was to call up several child psychologists and ask um, how to talk with with children about what was taking place. I mean, it was such, uh, it, you know, in the immediate aftermath, all of us, uh, adults, parents, teachers, we were all trying to process what was happening, trying to understand what was going on. And so I wanted some thoughts on how to talk about this with children. Mm. We'd asked our listeners to join us to tell us uh, what they're thinking about on this 20th anniversary, uh, what they remember about that day. Uh, Rasan is calling in from Cromwell. Rasan, welcome to the show. What did you want to share? Hi, I was, uh, Lucy, first of all, I just remember the day I was flying back from London and uh, they announced on the plane that there was a terror attack and they turned us around and routed us to um, Ireland for a week. And what I remember, this was back when you could only, you could still make phone calls on the plane with the seat in front of you. And I spoke to my grandmother and she told me that a plane hit a building in New York and she didn't tell me the magnitude of what was going on, but as a native New Yorker, I thought, you know, it didn't seem that crazy that a plane would crash to a building because... The, air, the airplane circled over the city to get to Queens. Um, and once I landed and saw what happened, I, I was just devastated because I couldn't call my family because no cell phones were working either. Wow. Uh, you're a native New Yorker. Uh, how will you be spending tomorrow, Rasan? What have you thought about as each anniversary has come and gone? Um, I, you know, tomorrow I'll be watching uh, the ceremony, um, like so many others will, and just reflecting on, you know, people that I knew and, you know, I worked across the street from the towers when I was in finance. So I, had I been in the States, I would have been right there. Um, I think any time that you, you think you might have come that close to any kind of horrific event, you just spend a lot of time reflecting. Right. Well, Rasan, uh, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Uh, you can as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Diane, I believe 161 people with ties to Connecticut were killed that day. So um, how did you continue to cover this story in the days and months after? Well, at the time, I was doing a lot of education reporting. So, you know, I actually, my children were young at that time, six and nine. And as I said, you know, on the day of 9-11, I um, reached out to several child psychologists. But in the weeks following and years following, um, I, I continued to go back to speak with educators on teaching 9-11 and, and, and how that was being handled um, and, and, and learned a lot. I mean, I, th- I think several things jumped to mind that I remember what experts said at the time, and, and many of them you know, still hold true today, you know, to, to, when talking with children to uh, 
begin by listening, listening to what children of all ages have to say, and to be sure that responses were age appropriate, not to shy away from hard conversations and to, you know, respond with truth and facts, and, and also to be able to admit that we don't always have all the answers and that's okay. And, you know, in the early, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath, it wasn't clear, you know, who, who the perpetrators were, but as that became clearer, there was and continues to be uh, a, a very important need to carefully uh, identify that these were terrorists and not to conflate or equate terrorism with Islam. Right. Uh, Suzanne from Branford is calling in. Uh, Suzanne, uh, what does uh, the 20th anniversary mean to you? Well, it's, it's a lot what Diane was talking about. I had a nine-year-old, but we lived in Maine. And we took a lot of trips to New York City because she loved the theater, and we we loved just loved New York City. We had just been there; we had just gone through there that weekend. So she took it really hard, and I didn't know what to do as a parent. So I'm going to get emotional. It really surprises me. Um, but so I didn't know what to do. So I thought I need to give her some control. So she, I said, do something then. If you if you're so sad about it, what can we do? And she thought to send teddy bears to the kids there. So she, it ended up being this huge thing. And Senator Collins from Maine got involved. And we ended up on a huge drive. And we stuffed a fire truck full of a 1,000 teddy bears that have recordings in them for the kids that were affected by 9-11. And that helped her immensely. Um, and it just, it just showed us, like, okay, this is the best. Like, we... I sort of miss the America of nine nine twelve, like that. A lot of stuff came out of it that we were. I think that we were at our best then as a country, and so many so many acts of kindness came out of it from from a nine year old in Maine and how many people helped her to all the other stories that you heard. So um, we went. We go back every year, and we we started that year when there was still like. It was still devastation, and we said to ourselves, we're going to go back every year and see it rebuild, and that's what we did. And and she will um, tell you now at 29 that that was the year she lost her innocence. Mm. Well, Suzanne, that's, that's hard to hear as a parent, but thank you for calling in today and, and talking with us about um, how you and your daughter um, worked to, to help others on that day. Diana, what can you say in, in response as we heard her? Many Americans feel like it, the country did come together. A lot of, a lot of things uh, came out of, of, of that event, unfortunately, uh, two wars and many more deaths. But um, the feeling that the nation had um, after this traumatic event. Well, um, you mentioned that I had uh, the privilege of working on a, a, a documentary about 9-11 um, for Connecticut Public Television, and I'm quite influenced and was very inspired by a conversation I had with this brilliant Yale historian, David Blight, who actually had written, he was a he was an advisor to the 9-11 memorial in, at Ground Zero and has written very beautifully about, about it. Um, and I agree with him because, you know, he, he would talk about this, notion of American innocence that, you know, until 9-11, Americans kind of lived with this idea that whatever happened to us, we somehow were, uh, we lived above these horrific tragedies of world history. But the truth is that, the truth is that we've experienced tragedies in our history all along. And that's because it's part of the human experience. I mean, you know, in our U.S. history from, you know, 
slavery from the Civil War to, you know, ending World War II by dropping the atomic bomb to, you know, Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. We are part of human history and there are tragedies in human history. And I think what's what I learned from him and what I really agree with is that thinking thoughtfully and critically about these events is not at odds with patriotism. It's not at odds with love of country. It's just kind of an essential part of the human spirit. And I think now that we have 20 years distance from uh, 9-11, we can move into a space where we can think more carefully about events that happened uh, before 9-11 and have happened after. And that kind of rigorous thought and study is not at odds with love of country. Mm. Uh, you mentioned again this documentary that you worked on in the lead up to the 20th anniversary. I'm speaking with Connecticut Public Radio's Deputy News Director Diane Orson. Uh, our listeners can watch that uh, documentary online at ctpublic.org. Uh, you spoke to several different people. I know there was an emergency responder, also a veteran. Who would you like to, to talk about right now? Well, let's talk about um, the emergency responder. This is Mark Hartog. We have a clip from him. He's currently Westport's deputy director of emergency medical service, but he was uh, a New Yorker, born and raised, and he'd served as an EMT in New York City and actually worked, um, you know, had been around for the first World Trade Center bombing. He'd worked on training around weapons of mass destruction. But he had about, um, he'd moved to Connecticut down to Westport and continued to commute and, and work uh, as a first responder in New York City for quite a long time. But the year before 9-11, he switched over to um, Westport Emergency Medical Service. Um, so I spoke with him um, on 9-11. He told me that he, he was headed, he was going to head down to the city. Um, but then he was told to stand by in Westport to receive injured patients. Because like I said, originally, you know, there was a thought that there would be a lot of, um, that, you know, the, they were evacuating people on Metro North. And they, they, originally, the thought was that there would be a lot of injured um, coming up to Connecticut. But after the towers fell, he knew that there would be few survivors. Um, so I I asked him as a first responder what 9-11 means to him now, and here's his response. It's just a day that, that for a long time I had a lot of, for me personally, I had a lot of trouble, I don't want to call survivor's guilt, but I had a lot of trouble dealing with the fact that I was a New Yorker, that I was a paramedic, a New York paramedic, and I wasn't there when so many of my coworkers were there. Um, I know it's a silly thing, silly thing to feel, but that's something that stuck with me for quite a long time. It was years before I could go back down there. You know, I've been back to Manhattan so many times, but it wasn't until probably about, I want to say maybe four years ago, three, four years ago, that uh, we finally went down there with my family. Oh, Diane, we know the 20th anniversary coincides with uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we've seen what a debacle that has become. Uh, you spoke with a veteran of the Afghanistan war uh, before we saw the withdrawal. Uh, tell us about her. Uh, this is Alyssa Kelleher. We also have a clip of tape from her. She was a platoon leader and a company commander. She was um, she spent over two years deployed in Afghanistan and actually is now director at UConn's <coughs> Office of Veterans Affairs and Military Programs. 
And I wondered if 9-11 was the reason she joined the military. So I asked how 9-11, um, you know, if it had inspired her to join the military and how it had affected her military service. 9-11 actually happened while I was at basic training. So I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and it's kind of a strange, um, strange version of 9-11 for me because I never got to see any of the news stories, any of the, you know, anything that anyone else was watching live. I never saw any of that. Um, they just came on the loudspeaker in the barracks one night and said, hey, this happened. And we thought it was fake at first, like part of the training. And then uh, over the next few days, realized that it was real. Diane, you know, I, she and I spoke. I'm go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, I can't imagine being uh, uh, someone who had just enlisted in the military and and <laughs> seeing this transpire and realized that um, this means that the country will likely be going to war. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I can't. I can't imagine it either. Um, it, 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 we, she and I spoke. Uh, before the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. But at the time, the Taliban was still kind of rapidly advancing toward Kabul. Um, and, and I asked her, you know, how, how from her vantage point now, how this experience, um, how she viewed it. And it was really interesting. I mean, she said that she had really uh, mixed feelings. I mean, she understood at the time why the U.S. was pulling out, but acknowledged that it was very hard having lost some of her soldiers, you know, in the war. Um, so, yeah, it's been complex. Mm. And we know uh, so many others chose to enlist after 9-11 uh, to yeah. serve the country as well. Well, Diane Orson, uh, the documentary uh, that uh, you put together, it's really powerful, and we didn't have time to talk about this, but you also speak to a generation of Americans who hadn't been born yet uh, about uh, their thoughts on 9-11, and it was really interesting to hear their perspective as well. Again, you can see that documentary at ctpublic.org. Diane is our deputy news director and Southern Connecticut bureau chief at Connecticut Public. Thank you so much for your time, Diane. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. This is where we live. Coming up, we hear from one of the Connecticut residents uh, who was impacted uh, by 9-11 personally. New Canaan resident Mary Fetchett will join us to talk about her son, Brad. He was working at the World Trade Center that day and how she has worked over the last two decades to support families affected by 9-11. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This Saturday marks 20 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people on American soil. The tragedy affected so many families, and we know how it impacted U.S. foreign affairs, resulting in two wars and many more deaths, including American service members. My next guest lost her 24-year-old son on 9-11. New Canaan resident Mary Fetchett would go on to co-found a family advocacy group to help grieving families like hers. Mary joins us now via Zoom. Mary, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, where we live, listeners, I heard from you on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and now uh, we are approaching 20 years. For listeners who don't know your story, can you tell us about your son, Brad? Uh, yes, uh, uh, my, my 24-year-old son, Brad, was working at Keith Perretton Woods, um, and they were on the 89th floor of Tower 2, the second tower that was hit, but the first to collapse. And on 9-11, he called my husband at work um, just to reassure him that he was okay um, and to tell us that the uh, first tower was hit. They weren't sure, you know, if it was a prop plane or what the circumstances were, uh, but they were told to remain in the building and expect he expected to be there all day. So um, I happened to work at an outpatient mental health clinic in Milford about half hour from our home and um so brad left me a similar message um on our home line and of course uh you know we didn't hear from him again it's so hard to hear that mary and i know it's been 20 years but i'm so sad to hear about the loss of your son um, when we think about uh, brad's life uh, i know you and your husband have been very clear that you don't want people to focus on his death but how he lived can you talk more about that well brad was the oldest of our three sons at the time our son wes was 20 years old and attending bucknell university actually all three sons went to school there. Uh, and then our son, Chris, was just 13 at the time, so he was in middle school. Brad was, um, you know, much uh, like a father figure to his older uh, brothers because there was such an age difference when you think about, uh, he was four years older than, than uh, Wes, but he was 11 years uh, older uh, than Chris. Um, and we moved a lot. My husband, Frank, worked for IBM. So, you know, Brad, like most older children, was really someone that I relied on. And he was, uh, number one, you know, just a very responsible, um, compassionate and kind uh, young man. He was an accomplished athlete. He played uh, both hockey and lacrosse in high, throughout high school and then in college. Um, he was very understated. Um, you know, he, he loved people from all the walks of life and he was always, uh, surrounded by, you know, friends, uh, that he met, uh, along the way. And, um, so it was a big loss for, for our family. Um, 
certainly for all the families that lost somebody on 9-11, we certainly didn't think um, that a terrorist attack like September 11th could happen here in the United States uh, or that it would take the lives of people that were just going about their, their daily business, going to work, going to school and so forth. I'm talking to Mary Fetchett, a New Canaan resident and founding director of Voices Center for Resilience, previously Voices of September 11th. Fetchett co-founded the organization in 2001, following the death of her 24-year-old son, Brad, who worked at the World Trade Center. So here we are, you know, 20 years later, and when we started the organization, uh, I, I worked at a mental health clinic, and so my background was social work. And so what I did, you know, pretty immediately after is reached out to the families in Connecticut, really through our, our congressman, Chris Shea's office. Um, he had created a 600-page book on all the how-tos, um, how to file for a death certificate, you know, how to access support services that were available and so forth. And so it was those meetings in my home where I met Beverly Eckerd. Uh, she lost her husband, uh, Sean Rooney, and she lived in, in Stanford, Connecticut. And so she and I uh, went on to create the organization, which um, was originally called Voices of September 11th. And you know, as you said, we recently changed the name to Voices Center for Resilience. So you are a, a licensed clinical social worker. Was it that background that made you feel like you wanted to reach out to help other families grieving? Well, it were it was certainly the principles of you know how I treated my clients um, when I worked at the mental health clinic. I was um, you know uh, certainly um, committed to providing continuity of care. You know, if you met with somebody, it was your responsibility to connect them with services. I also realized the, the complexities on September 11th. Uh, you know, the decisions were made, being made in New York City that impacted all of our families. And so we needed to really be, you know, sitting at that table to, to help guide our elected officials and people that were in charge, you know, and, and what the families needed and what had to be considered whether it was the first year or the 20th year. Um, and so, um, you know, certainly first and foremost was information and that's act actually where we access the information. We also realized that they needed support. Um, you know, certainly they didn't have a mental health condition. I mean, they were just human, uh, you know, to, you know, their response to their loss um, certainly was very understandable. So they really needed to be in touch with people that understood that loss and could help um, provide programs, which we continue to do today, that promotes resilience. This all sounds so very overwhelming, but you've obviously touched a lot of people that were grieving just like you and your family. Uh, personally, did that help you process your grief, Mary, that you were helping other families during this time? Well, I felt that I was in a unique position to be able to do that. Um, I, I feel very strongly um, that that these families uh, deserve support. And pre-9-11, I had attended a, a conference where Marsha Kite spoke, and she lost her, her daughter in the Oklahoma City bombing. 
And so pre 9-11, I did a lot of research on how they responded to the Oklahoma City bombing. And so I'd travel into Connecticut and uh, into uh, New York City to Columbia University. You know, you had to go to an academic institution back in the 90s to do research. And so I, through that research, I was um, able to um, start training on our clinic's uh, response team. Uh, so I never went back to work there, but as an example, people that I worked with uh, responded to the Newtown shooting and spent many, you know, probably years uh, with that community. So I had this um, unique understanding of, um, you know, what it's like for a community to, to go through a tragedy. And then, of course, I had professional training. And then I was a victim's family member myself. So I understood intimately uh, what was needed. And I also understand that, that understood that people go through things differently. You know, they grieve in their own way. They grieve in their own time. So the thing that people may not understand is the need continues. These people are resilient, but they still need support from time to time. And our organization is in, in a unique position because we've um, established longstanding relationships with service providers and organizations. We know what these people have gone through on the first day, and we know what they're going through on the 20th anniversary. Um, but the thing is, I'd have to say, what people probably don't realize is that they uh, there were over 500,000 people that either responded in the aftermath of 9-11, immediately after in the months following, um, or, that, or they survived. They lived, worked, and went to school in the area. Uh, those people are now sick, and they are... Um, uh, qualify for treatment through the World Trade Center Health Program. So there's actually 83,000 survivors and responders that are receiving medical and mental health treatment. Um, you know, some of the medical conditions are life, life-threatening. And since 9-11, over 4,700 have died. So um, leaving behind bereaved families 20 years later without any support. So that's another uh, gap that we feel fill because although these people didn't die on 9-11, they died because of 9-11. So they are part of the community that we serve. That's an important point uh, that you bring up, Mary, that they should also not be forgotten and they should be supported. You know, I often think that as a society that we struggle talking about grief and sometimes we don't know what to say to someone who has lost a loved one. And I'm wondering if you could talk about things that people have said to you that have helped you uh, in your grieving process. And then conversely, things that people may say that, you know, don't help and any advice that you would give our listeners when we're talking about loss. Well, I think the mentality that um, people should be over it, you know, when you suffer a loss uh, like people suffered on 9-11, um, you know, you don't get over it. You learn to live with it. And so, you know, that's, you know, a role that we feel of building that community that what we found, because we actually started in 2007 conducting research, and that was really um, based on our recognition that, you know, after the Virginia Tech shooting and many other 
tragedies, the same mistakes are being made time and time again. Um, and so, um, you know, it's my feeling that if communities are better prepared, they're going to be able to respond more appropriately and meet the needs of the individuals, you know, immediately after the tragedy and circumvent a lot of the mental health conditions that come up because people have complicated systems to navigate, you know, they're, they're notified of their loved one's death by somebody that's unqualified to make that notification. Uh, there aren't the supports available for these people. So I think if we can be more proactive in, in um, you know, the preparing communities in, in advance, uh, the better off that these communities are going to be able to uh, bounce back and be resilient. Um, what we found in our research, too, is the value of peer-to-peer -peer support. And we uh, created a different model in the sense that um, our uh, it's overseen by um, trained clinicians. Um, but we do see a real value and validation when we're bringing people together that have suffered a similar loss. So family members with family members, responders with responders, survivors with survivors. And I have to say probably the group that's been most overlooked is the people that survived because they've been told, unfortunately, that they are lucky that they're alive when they don't feel lucky. They have, you know, some lost thousands of friends. Uh, they attended hundreds of funerals. Um, and no one really recognizes the impact that it has uh, on them. So um, that's what we're seeing now, you know, 20 years later, some of those people coming forward, never really knowing that our organization existed, but because of the um, focus on the 20th anniversary, uh, you know, more and more, we receive a call almost every day from people we've never heard from before. My guest is Mary Fetchett. She's a New Canaan resident who lost her 24-year-old son, Brad, on 9-11. She's co-founder of Voices Center for Resilience, an advocacy group for families dealing with traumatic events. You know, we like to think that we've done a better job as a country understanding trauma because of the many traumatic events that have happened in communities over the last two decades. Now we're seeing another trauma among uh, first responders, um, healthcare workers uh, responding to this pandemic and uh, so much death and uh, impact on families. Um, do you think that part of your work will be um, how to help these pandemic frontline workers too, or, or ways that uh, communities can respond to them? I, th I think there's a lot of parallels actually. Um, you know, in, in our research, we actually uh, created tip sheets, you know, to be proactive, uh, for communities to be proactive. And when COVID hit, you know, as much as um, the loss of life and so forth. There was also, um, you know, I, I was worried really about the mental health pandemic. So we tried to be proactive in educating people about how to support their children, how to support their family, you know, how to deal with isolation, you know, and those kinds of things. Um, we saw, and we do a needs, conduct a needs assessment every year, and we saw um, within the 9-11 community, 
the COVID, uh, you know, many people either lost someone, um, you know, to COVID, lost someone during COVID, um, which was, you know, very traumatic. Or if they lived in New York, sometimes they were down the street from one of the medical centers or the makeshift morgues, and they would hear the ambulances and the, you know, the police cars, um, as well as people playing their pans at seven o'clock. You know, for somebody that has PTSD that's gone through something like uh, they did on 9-11, they, um, you know, this is a, absolutely a trigger. Similarly, um, I, the attack on the Capitol building, you know, that sense of unpredictability, you know, of watching things play out, um, you know, that were um, very, uh, that they didn't have control over to see the anger and the hatred, you know, right here in our own country. And, um, uh, but also the social unrest, you know, George Floyd and, um, you know, the horrible um, uh, killings that have transpired. Also the collapse of the building in Surfside, a lot of parallels, you know, where people are waiting for notification of remains and, and, um, you know, and responders are sifting through, you know, the building that was destroyed. So, um, you know, I just think, um, and now the with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, the question of, you know, are we safer today? Or is this something that we're going to have to live with the rest of our lives, the unpredictability? So all of those things for people that are traumatized, not just 9-11, but any trauma, um, it does bring things up. And unfortunately, there's no end to the shootings, uh, you know, whether it's in an elementary school or a theater or a, uh, you know, a, a mall um, or a synagogue. I mean, time and time again, uh, we're having to, to be faced with yet another group of, of victims' families. And um, so I do see some of the work that we're doing actually is sharing the expertise um, that we have and what we've learned about healing and resilience uh, in the 9-11 community. You know, it's really, like I said, remarkable that people have gone through the loss they suffered and subsequent losses, by the way. You know, maybe they lost a child on 9-11 and their other child died suddenly, you know, five years later. Um, so there, there's a lot of that uh, within the community, but I would have to say probably across the board in the general public. So the more that we can do to, to build resiliency and provide the support that people need after these tragedies better. Yeah, Mary, uh, much of our time speaking has focused on the work uh, that you uh, and your husband uh, have done to help uh, serve these families grieving after 9-11. But personally, how will you mark this 20th anniversary? And can you describe what this last month has been like for you and your family and, and what you want listeners to know? Well, running an organization um, that's focused on 9-11 around the 20th anniversary, there is certainly a flurry of activity. We had an art exhibit, um, which, which started actually with a collection of male art that we had 
2,300 pieces of mail art that were donated to us. But then we realized uh, that we have children's artwork. We have quilts. We have, you know, all of this incredible artwork that's been given to us over the years. Um, so, of course, you know, now um, we very seldom look back. We're always looking forward. And I realize that we have to spend uh, quite a bit of time really looking at, you know, what we have as an organization, uh, whether it's artwork or historical documents. Um, the, the conference that we have on September 9th and 10th, uh, which people can view online if they're not uh, with us in New York City, um, and they can register on our, our website, voicescenter.org, uh, that is really a compilation of our work. And, you know, it's in very interesting uh, because, as I said, I, we spend very little time looking backwards. And the 20th anniversary really is a time for us to remember those people that died, you know, on 9-11 and since 9-11 uh, to reflect on the journey. And, and that's very emotional for me because we've had, I don't even know what the number, tens of thousands of people that have stepped forward over the last 20 years, continuing today, by the way, uh, to help us, um, you know, whether they're volunteering, whether they're donating, whether they're, you know, have a, a clinical background and they're, you know, contributing to our mental health programs. Um, you know, the 9-11 commissioners, uh, congressmen and senators that we had an opportunity to work with over the years. It's um, in some ways, um, it's very, being re retrospective is very emotional for me because I, you know, I just think about all the incredible people that I've had an opportunity to meet and, you know, just how grateful I am for all that they've done to support and continue to do to support our work. Mary Fetchett, again, is founding director of Voices Center for Resilience. She co-founded this organization to help families after 9-11, and she lost her son, Brad, on that day. Mary, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you've been doing, helping so many. We appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we talk to a local woman who's part of a tribute concert happening this weekend at the Bushnell. You can join us, too. How will you mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks? Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're reflecting on the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and we've been wanting to hear from you this hour about what this anniversary means. Uh, Carol tweeted at us and said, on 9-11 in 2001, I worked for the Red Cross, and I remember thinking at the time, where will we be in 20 years? And here we are, and I still have no words. Tomorrow, I'll be donating blood. It's the least I could do. And Carol also tweeted, I wonder what happened to the woman I met at the Greenwich Ark chapter house who held in her hand her husband's hairbrush, seeking to provide his DNA for ID purposes. Where is she? 
How is she? What happened to him? And who was he? It is overwhelmingly sad. So we know that towns and cities across our state will be holding memorial services tomorrow to mark this anniversary. Others will gather to sing or play songs in remembrance of the people lost in the terrorist attacks. Joining me now on Zoom is Sandy Zajak. She's actually the publicity chair of Middlesex Hospital Vocal Chords. This music group will present a musical tribute on the anniversary uh, at the Bushnell tomorrow on the Mortensen Hall stage. Sandy, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. We've been asking our listeners to uh, tell us where they were on 9-11. I know uh, the, the Vocal Chords group has been around for some time. So tell us, how did the group members respond uh, when this uh, day happened? Well, it was a very emotional time, and it was a day that uh, uh, we would be having rehearsal uh, that night. And our uh, leaders, uh, Joyce Gent and Gina Fredericks, decided that we needed to do something a little special to help people who might be grieving because of what happened. So they uh, put together a small program at Holy Trinity Church in Middletown. And we had a moment of silence and we sang a few songs and it was very healing um, for all of us to be together because we were all grieving at the same time. That's a beautiful church in Middletown. I understand that Vocal Chords has about 80 members. And when we think about gathering and being with one another, it, it can be healing, especially when you're gathering in song, Sandy. Oh, definitely. Um, as a matter of fact, our motto is relieving stress, lifting spirits, and healing souls with music. And so many of our members, as Mary Fetchett was talking about grief, uh, many of our members have suffered terrible grief and they joined vocal cords to fill that void in their lives. And many have said that we brought them back to life through our music. So we feel very fortunate to have these people. Um, and because of Joyce Gent, who started this organization, 31 years ago, uh, she knew that uh, people needed a place to um, to heal and lift their spirits. And she has done a great job with that. Mm. So you gathered together to sing on that day. And now we're here at the 20th anniversary. So you've been preparing uh, over the last few uh, weeks and months for this tribute concert. So tell us about um, the songs that you've chosen and how you've thought about this, uh, this gathering tomorrow. Uh, well, we have quite a few songs that have very um, meaningful uh, words. Uh, we'll be starting out with the national anthem, of course, and um, we will sing I Pledge My Allegiance. Uh, there is one, there will be several readings during the program, and one of the most important readings is The Lady, and it's a reading um, giving a detailed account of how uh, Lady Liberty was looking over as the towers were coming down and tears were running down her cheeks. And after uh, that reading, we'll be singing, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, uh, which talks about the immigrants coming over to our country many years ago. Um, we'll also be doing the Armed Forces Salute to um, honor those who are our veterans um, and our firefighters and EMS and police officers and the military. Um, we'll have You'll Never Walk Alone. Um, and um, a few other songs uh, that are patriotic 
and uh, we will have the um, Portland and Middletown Select Chorus singing a few songs um, under the direction of Samuel Tucker and Stephanie Zach. So we're looking forward to that. Well, that sounds really lovely, Sandy. Uh, for our listeners who want to attend, uh, again, this will be at the Mortensen Hall stage at the Bushnell tomorrow. Uh, where can they go to learn more information? Uh, they can call the box office um, at 860-987-5900. The box office will be open today and tomorrow for tickets, uh, just that people have to know that they have to follow the protocol. They have to have a vaccine um, ID card or a negative COVID uh, test 72 hours before or six hours before the program. And uh, you can learn about us also on our website, uh, vocalchords20.org, or you can go to thebushnell.org. Well, Sandy Zajak, again, publicity chair and member of Middlesex Hospital Vocal Chords. We thank you for coming on the show. And I just want to uh, reiterate to listeners that the proceeds will go towards uh, Connecticut first responders. Uh, the Connecticut uh, Benev Firefighters, EMS and Police Benevolent Fund, and also the Middlesex Health COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund. Sandy Zajac, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. You can download the show on your favorite podcast app. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>